But Jonah is an odd book, and Andy really started Jonah for us last week, and some of you have since said, you know, I read Jonah a couple of years ago, or I'm reading Jonah right now, or Jonah's weird, what do you do with the last chapter? And, uh, And we're all having the same conversation. See, most people know Jonah as the prophet who disobeys God. He gets swallowed by a big well that comes up and snatches him out of the air and takes him to the ocean depths, and then he repents, and he gets spit up on the ground, and then he goes and proclaims to the Ninevites, and everyone's happy and rejoices. And that's a story that almost everybody knows. That's the one that we put in the kids' book, but then most people don't know chapter 4. Chapter 4 changes a lot about Jonah. So the way that we're going to do Jonah is just like we've done all other books of the Bible. We're going to start with, with chapter 1, verse 1, and we just move through. And we just want to put to the believers, to the saints, to the Christians, what God's Word says, and then we just kind of let it fall where it will. And in that way, we've moved through Galatians, we've moved through the Gospel of John, we've moved through Titus. Now we're at Jonah. Uh, about a month's time, we're going to be in James, and we're going to be in Genesis, and we're just going to keep moving through wrestling with what God's Word has. And so with that, Jonah chapter 4 might be new information for some of you. But I'm going to go ahead and just tell you it comes down to this. Cliff Note version. Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah and says, go preach repentance to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, no. Jonah hops on a boat, tries to flee the presence and the commission of God. God said, go. Jonah said, no. And so this great storm arises. Jonah's down in the hole of the ship sleeping. And the men, who are all pagans, by the way, they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. There's this huge storm. What's going on? Jonah says, it's me. Just throw me overboard. And they're they're like, no, we're not going to throw you overboard. You're going to drown out here. So they try to row to shore. They try to outrow the storm that God has sent because of Jonah's disobedience. Ultimately, they throw him overboard. Says in, in verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In Jonah chapter 2, That's what we're going to look at today. We're really going to move through it. In Jonah chapter 2, we see that Jonah uh, prays to God. He repents. And then at the very end of it, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. In chapter 3, Jonah is going to go to Nineveh. Spoiler alert. They're going to repent. And then Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is so frustrated and disappointed with the Lord that he would save the Ninevites. It's just bizarre. And then it all ends. That's the end of Jonah. The end of Jonah is not that the Ninevites repent. The end of Jonah is that Jonah's pretty upset with the Lord. And he says, this is exactly why I didn't want to go. You would have loving compassion on them. And then it all ends. Verse 11, the Lord says, And and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And then the end. Like it's chapter four really changes our view, but I think we need to have that scope here. Okay. Because that's what I like about Jonah. You and I are probably, probably a lot more like Jonah than we care to think or admit. The Lord says, go. And then we want to negotiate. And oftentimes we're like, I I don't feel like serving in that way. I don't feel like I need to go there. God, why don't you send somebody else? But the Lord says go, and and in one form or another, we probably have that temptation to say, no, not me. And then we repent, which is what we're going to see Jonah do today. 
And then we get pushed back into that opportunity. And then sometimes, if we're not careful, we do the act, but our heart is completely wrong. I read Jonah, and as I read Jonah, I'm like, man, they just recorded my whole life. How did they do that? But there is a lot of truth in Jonah that you and I should wrestle with. It's the story, and it's a, it's a historical, it's a real story of a completely imperfect prophet that God uses for His glory. And that's why we look at Jonah, because even though it bears his name, even though it says Jonah, Jonah is not the hero here. You're going to see that by the end. At the end of it, you're going, gosh, I don't want to be like Jonah. And then you're not going to be able to read those kids' books the same either. I'm just going to tell you. You're going to pick up those cardboard kids' books about Jonah with the happy well, and there's a happy prophet in there, and he's completely clean, by the way, which how is that going to happen in the belly of a fish? But he's happy, and he prays, and he gets vomited up on earth. That's what Scripture says. Completely clean, and he's happy. The Ninevites are happy at the end. That's not the story. So this is probably going to wreck your children's reading experience, just so you know, as we move through it. All right, so Jonah chapter 2, though. Jonah chapter 2 is where we pick up. Jonah says, and I'm, I'm actually going to start in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So that's our passage today. And we're not going to do the, the children's story version of it. Don't, give, don't get me wrong. What a great story to teach our, our kids. But parents, as we're teaching our kids these stories, and we're teaching them about Noah's Ark, man, it's a great nursery theme. It's a great story. But these are also very heavy, tragic stories as well. Noah's Ark, we, we see the pictures where there's a happy giraffe and his head's hanging out the boat. And, and everybody's just kind of happy on that boat. But that's a story of God's judgment. That's a story of God flooding the world because sin had ran rampant in it. And God even says that every thought of man was wicked. So we can teach those stories, but let's teach the stories in the context of what they are. In the context of, of Jonah being swallowed by a well is that you know, when we disobey God, He will discipline us. That's not a popular message. It's probably going to get a lot of listens on a podcast these days. But it's a scriptural truth. And that's why I like to move through the Bible as we see God's Word put together the way He wanted to put together. And we don't neglect verses and we don't neglect books or passages because it's going to ultimately cause us to reckon with what God has inspired His prophets to write for our good. So Jonah chapter 2 and 3 and 4... I actually, 
am greatly encouraged by them. But there is a sobering truth that we see here. And so there, there's three points for today. Because, by the way, in a Baptist church, there's always going to be three points. Okay, So, three points. Here's what we see. You're going to see God's discipline. You're going to see Job's repentance. And you're going to see God's deliverance. In ten passages, right? Or I'm sorry, ten verses right here. That's the paradigm we're going to be moving through. God's discipline, Job's repentance, God's deliverance. And I'm just going to say this. You can replace, um, not Job, I'm so sorry, Jonah. Um, I'm just going to tell you, if I say Job today, I mean Jonah. Like, just do that autocorrect in your head because as I'm going through Jonah and then I'm thinking through Job's because Job's is a slightly different scenario, I kept finding myself um, doing that. So bear with me, I'm so sorry. But um, you can replace Jonah with, with who we are right now. That when we disobey God, God will discipline his children. And when we repent, God will deliver his children. But there's a paradigm for the Christian life that for those of us who say we are Christians, that we believe that Christ is the Lord and that we want to walk a life of holiness, this is a paradigm that we can hold to. But, but let's see what's going on in Jonah's life. Okay, so God's discipline. And do, you, do you see the discipline? That's the big question. Because as I was telling some people, um, hey, here's what we're going to be preaching, and, and there's discipline in it. There's kind of a moment where they go, huh. We don't like to talk about discipline uh, in general, but we also don't like to really talk about God disciplining his people because we live in a culture where God is love, and God is forgiving, and God is compassionate, and God is patient. Absolutely he is, but God is holy, and he expects obedience of his people. All right, I'm looking around the room, and there are parents and, 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 uh, and uncles and aunts, and y'all have dealt with kids before. I mean, what if we just let our kids live in active disobedience, right? What if we did that? What if we said, go do this, and they said no, and we go, okay. I mean, what's the product of that child really going to be? I'll tell you, parenting hardest job, most frustrating, and also most humbling and defeating thing that I think I've ever done in my life. I mean, just when you think, I figured it out. This, I, like, I like how you laugh at that. <laughs> just when you think you do, though, there's that humbling moment whenever you're thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I remember whenever Jackson was born, I remember holding him and and there's that moment where there's you know just that instant connection of oh my goodness like I didn't know I could love in this way and then there's also this terrifying voice that comes from the back saying you could really mess that kid up in 18 years okay and so like I I want to raise my kids the right way and that means that I have to hold them accountable right to raise them up in obedience and whenever they disobey there's going to be discipline and discipline can look different to each kid and in different families and in different contexts but you understand the principle. Church, if we are the sons and daughters of a holy God, would he not be just to hold us accountable as well? We might not like it. It might be an uncomfortable thought. But I actually think it's a really encouraging thought. That he would care so much that when we disobey, that the God who speaks stars into existence would step aside from all of that and move into our personal life to say, no, walk after me, and I will get your attention. So there's a great encouragement in that. And that he doesn't discipline without purpose, but he disciplines to right us so that we can live for his glory. 
So there is comfort in God's discipline, but there is discipline here. And, and that's what we're seeing here. Look at this. We can say this is God's judgment, but we can also just say this is discipline. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you, see, he recognized, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And, and other translations say, how, how can I ever look again upon your temple? So there's actually despair there. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. I mean, can you... That's actually a pretty, pretty apt description of everything that went on. So you have to read that to understand this. Whenever they threw Jonah over into the ocean, the way I always pictured it is they throw Jonah, the great fish catches him, it's a great sea world climactic moment, and then it just dives down to the ocean depths. What this tells us is that there was actually torment. They threw him in, and, and look at that. The flood surrounds him. He goes down into the deep. There's seaweed all wrapped around him. So that the billows are cracked, like the waves are actually up over his head. Like it's a, it's a depiction of he's drowning. He's been thrown into this raging ocean that God has sent to discipline him, discipline him in his disobedience. And it's this, this uh, torrentious like moment. And then salvation comes. Then the fish at some point comes and gets him. But can you imagine, like, what, I, I would be terrified in that moment. There's only been a couple of moments in life whenever I felt like I would drown. And in those moments, you're caught there in the water, and, and you have absolutely no hope because you can't draw in breath or you will draw in water. There is no hope whenever you're there at that death. And, and it's all there. And my distress, he says, the belly of shield, like the, the belly of, uh, of great depth and depravity, he's crying out from that. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. So he's at the depth of the sea, like his body was sinking into the oceans. Oh, God would never put us through hard things. God loves us. God cares for us. Everything is for our good. He would never, ever cause affliction for his people. When we disobey, God will discipline us. And if you read that slowly, and I think if we could hear Jonah pray this, we would hear the despair in his voice. Now, I want to stop before I go too much further and have a, a, a pretty quick pastoral moment. I was talking to a church member the other day. And as we were talking, I said to the, the church member, I said, now we need to be careful that what God means for conviction, Satan will use to just crush you. And we need to separate those two real quick. So we want to listen and we want to really pay attention to what the Lord is doing here because he might be convicting us, which is good. And that's, that's great. But at the same time, Satan might also be coming in saying, that's your problem. And he's going to come in and he's going to accuse you and he's going to try and bring you down. But I think that what we want to separate here is as we walk through different things in life, is it an attack or is it actually the Lord disciplining us? And I can't answer that one for you. I was never meant to answer that one for you. But you do need to know that there is a principle that we're going to see here 
that when we disobey the Lord, He absolutely will discipline us. And that's scriptural. All of our disobedience, church, that we should be held accountable for, though, was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. The disobedience that we may not face, the discipline that we may not face right now, is only because Christ has paid the full effect of it. But at the same time, it may be that if we disobey, He may throw us into the great storm to get our attention. But God reserves every right to discipline us. And this is even, even a New Testament. So hold your place there. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. So even as we talk about, about God's wrath being poured on Jesus Christ, and, and that pays the penalty of our disobedience, we can't forget Hebrews chapter 12. In case you're sitting there still wrestling with, well, I don't know if he would discipline us. I don't know if that's how he would deal with us now, because Jonah's Old Testament and, and Christ has come. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. says this, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Right? So we don't know who the, the writer of Hebrews is, but that writer, moved by the Spirit, wrote this for us right now. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son that he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you do not experience discipline like everyone else, then you're an illegitimate children and not true sons. Furthermore, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Should we not much more submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Did y'all catch that? But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. So what, is this, what does that help us to understand? It helps us to understand this. I'm just making sure that we, we understand this concept. That, that while we readily accept the loving mercy and grace of God's salvation, we must also readily accept the loving mercy and grace of His great discipline. Like we cling to that salvation. But Hebrews 12 makes me step back and go, praise the Lord for His discipline. Because you read Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, and it says that He disciplines those whom He loves. If I'm not being disciplined by the Lord because of my disobedience then it's making me think that I probably have a faith relationship problem. But it's very clear that he will discipline those whom he loves. says, what father wouldn't do that? And I'm looking around at, at parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, and I'm saying, do you not discipline those whom you love? Would God not do the same? And Hebrews 12 says, absolutely he would. It's why he threw Jonah into the ocean. He disciplined him because he loved him, but he disciplined him because he loved the Ninevites too. I also find it very appropriate, if you're still in Hebrews, look at verse 14. It's very appropriate whenever we talk about the discipline of the Lord. The 5 through 11, and, and then there's 12 and 13, but look at 14. 
Pursue peace with everyone. And then this one, as well as holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Y'all praise God that he will discipline us. It doesn't feel good. We don't like it. I don't think that Jonah was at the bottom of bottom of the ocean going, oh, good, God's sovereign. Everything's going to be, oh, hunky-dory. It's all going to be fine. No, I think that there was despair and distress because he knew what he had done. He knew he had sinned before a holy God. He's there. He's in despair. He's in the belly of Sheol. He's at the heart of the sea. And yet he cries out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? The Lord in his holy temple, his holy throne, he hears Jonah. Did I say Job and Jonah again? Did I get them crossed? Okay, I'm sorry if I did. This has been a fun game that God and I are playing since yesterday. Okay, but I think that Hebrews 12:14 is very clear. Maybe that's the one that we need to put on our shirts and wear around town. Maybe it's what we need on our coffee cups as a great reminder. It's actually why you need a close church body that without holiness, you and I will not see the Lord. Comfort, comfortability, profitability, health, wealth, all that. That's not what's going to cause us to see the Lord. Holiness. We need to be preaching holiness more. We need to be holding each other to accountable holiness to where whenever you see me misstep, you come alongside and lovingly say, without holiness, we will not see the Lord. But God has redeemed a people for his own sake that we should be different and that we should desire and pursue holiness. All right, so what the Lord is bringing in is conviction. Also remember, Satan is going to be using to accuse you and to break you down. That's a hard issue. You've got to work through that. But at the same time, maybe, maybe some of you are, are in a metaphorical belly of the fish because you know that God has said go or do, and you've said nope. And it doesn't always mean go to the nations. Maybe it's go to your neighbor. Maybe it's go to your family. Maybe it's serve here. Maybe it's be there. Maybe it's do this. Maybe it's make the phone call, the text. It's, it's do or go. And we say, I just really don't feel comfortable. That's essentially what Jonah said. I, I'm not, I don't want to do that. Okay, but we today would go, mm, I don't know. I'm just not comfortable. Jonah took it to the extreme. He jumps on a ship and he goes about 2,500 miles opposite direction, thinking that he can outrun the presence of the Lord. But whenever you serve and whenever we are under an omnipresent God, that means he's everywhere. You can never outrun the presence of the Lord. You can run, but you will never outrun who he is. So if he says, go, do, or be, Y'all, may we be obedient. It's for our good, but it's for proclaiming his glory. Our lives were never meant to be about us. What's the chief end of mankind? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God will discipline us for his good, for his glory. And I found three possible responses for us. Whenever God disciplines, there's, there's three things that, that I think we do. Number one, we refuse his discipline. We don't like it. We're like that. that I, I hear stories of Marissa, who whenever she would get in trouble, I mean, I, I have to use other people for disobedience because I'm so is a good kid. Okay, so, but I hear stories of Marissa and how she would run through the house and, and there was a way that she could get into a room and hold both doors shut like this. 
because she was refusing the discipline that was before her. She was going to bar everyone out of that room. I would never do that. Always an obedient child, right? But you and I have all done that. With our parents, you know what it means to refuse the discipline. We don't like it. We're going to yell. We're going to scream. We're going to huff and puff. We're, we're right. They're wrong. They don't get it. So we refuse. Y'all, we can do the same thing with the Lord if we're not careful. We, we might refuse the discipline of the Lord when we need to be careful. Another thing that we might do, we might, whenever we're disciplined by the Lord, we might be tempted to faint and give up. We know we did wrong. It's heavy discipline. I can't handle this. I'm just done. It's the equivalent of, equivalent of, of a, a kid crushed by the discipline. They just go throw themselves on their bed. They're like, I'm done. And they just sulk. At some point, they get some energy back, but even as you watch them, they're just carrying the weight of everything on their shoulders. And we do the same thing with the Lord. Whenever He disciplines us, sometimes that guilt weighs so heavy on us, and we feel like everything that's going on, we know we're guilty, we can't handle it, we don't like the discipline to the degree, we just kind of faint and give up. And then, third thing that we do, by the way, the first two, let me make a comment real quick, and then I'll give you a third. I think there's two reasons that we would refuse the discipline, or that we would faint and give up. There's two reasons. One of them is this, pride. Okay? We don't like pride. Y'all, there's, there's a reason that we would refuse. Do you, do you understand the audacity that we would have when God disciplines us to say, this isn't fair, you don't know what you're doing? Imagine the pride that must be in our lives to see the eternal holy God and know that he's disciplining us and say, this isn't fair. You don't know what you're doing. I mean, the, the height of our pride must be there. Usually what's going on there, we can't believe that God would allow that sort of pain and sort of uh, animosity and suffering and hardship into our lives. He would never do that to me. We deserve better than the storm waves. We deserve better than this hardship. I deserve better. And so whenever that big fish comes along and our pride rises up, y'all, may we, may we seek humility whenever the Lord punishes us because he did it for the right reason. We disobeyed him. We just humbly say, I'm sorry. I think the other reason that we would that we would uh, refuse it or faint is just, you know what, flat out ignorance. I, I was, I used to, I grew up and I went to, to Kimmins right over here. And if you were called ignorant at Kimmins, then it meant that there was about to be a fight. Okay. Because you didn't get called ignorant growing up. It was an insult. Man, I embrace ignorance now. I'd rather be ignorant than stupid. Okay. Stupid means you know better and you still do it. Ignorance means you just didn't know. So I think that there are a lot of Christians who've been disciplined by the Lord and they are, or they're in the midst of this chaos and turmoil and no one ever really walked with them in the Christian life to say, you know the reason that these things happen is because if you're disobedient, God will discipline you. They don't know what's going on. They know that God said go and they said no and then everything's falling around around them and they have absolutely no idea because no one ever walked alongside them and said that when you disobey God will discipline. So I don't even know if there's a lot of pride in that. I think there's just a lot of ignorance. They didn't know. The problem for us now is we know. It may be that the chaos that's surrounding our lives right now, it may be 
that the depths at, at which we find ourselves where we're looking going, God, what is going on? And why is this happening? I wonder if we could trace it back to our own active disobedience. And in that active disobedience, we have three choices. We can refuse it. We can just give up. Or the third one is this. We accept it, we repent, and we grow. It's a three-step process. You kind of look around and you're like, oh, okay. That's why you took me to the woodshed. I did do that. My bad. Okay? But it's going to be a whole lot more reverent than God, my bad. I mean, this is a holy God who's kind of called you out. But we can accept it, and whenever we accept it, we repent. And so that's actually what we're going to see with Job. Now, this has been the longest point, talking about God's discipline towards Jonah, not Job, um, towards Jonah, um, is that he's going to accept it. He's going to ultimately say, I get it, and I cried out to you. All right, so I want to ask you a few questions real quick. Which one of these do you tend to, these are rhetorical, right? Do not call these out. And don't, don't bump your neighbor or your spouse. And don't save this so that you can text it to them later. Just a, a couple of really quick questions with it. Um, have you been disobedient? And is the Lord actively trying to correct you? Have you actively been disobedient? Can you kind of go back, like you're looking at the turmoil in your life, can you go back and say, well, this is probably because this is what I did or didn't do? Maybe there's a sin that we've embraced that we know we shouldn't. Maybe there's forgiveness that we've withheld. I think unforgiveness is one of those very subtle, comfortable sins that is completely contrary to the gospel. I've told you all my story plenty of times. I don't feel like I really came alive or grew in my faith and really started living for the Lord until I realized that there was a lot of unforgiveness that had taken root in my heart. But until we forgive, we're never really going to be fully understanding the magnitude of that unforgiveness. Is there just simply a disobedience? Maybe it's not sin. Maybe it's not forgiveness. Maybe it's just something you know you're supposed to be doing, but you're just not doing And you need to know, scripturally speaking, and it's not just in Jonah, it's throughout the entire Bible, that when we are disobedient, God will discipline us. And Hebrews says that He disciplines us for our good, for His glory, because He loves us. He loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die for us. He loves us so much that He would discipline us. All right. Y'all, to rebel against God is to invite his discipline. So if he lays something on your heart, and if he says go, and you're tempted to say yes or no, you need to know that if you rebel against God, you are actually saying, I'm actively rebelling against you. You can discipline me. I don't want to do that. I mean, this is the God who speaks stars into existence and holds all things together. He moves all of nature against Jonah. I don't want to tell him no. That's just my practical... You can tweet that one out there. Don't say no. He'll send the earth against you. But also this. His disciplining of his people is to bring them to holiness. In Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, we will not see the Lord. All right. Now I'm going to move on much quicker. Point two is Job's repentance. See, the, there's a correlation in all this. It's all Jonah's repentance. It's even in my notes as Job and Jonah. My goodness, we're going to have some very confused um, uh, people at the end of this. Jonah's repentance. But y'all, as, 
as Jonah disobeys, God responds with discipline. As God disciplines, Jonah responds with repentance. As Jonah repents, God responds with deliverance. There is a relationship between these. And that's, what, that's where we find our hope. Take a, look at, take a look at what we see in Jonah 2, 7 through 9. He says, when my life was fainting away. So Jonah's at the depths. He really feels like he's about to die. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Y'all should read Revelation 4 and 5 constantly, by the way. It's very humbling. It's very um, it's a very high view of God and Christ reading Revelation 4 and 5. There's a really cool part in Revelation 4 and 5 as is, is John is looking at the resplendent throne of God and, and there's the God who we can't even begin to imagine as he speaks. There's thunder and lightning and the elders are throwing down their crowns and bowing down before him crying, holy, holy, holy. And as all this is going on, it says that, that there's a kind of a smoke, that there's an incense that's going up. And it says, these are the prayers of the saints. In the great holy throne room of our God, while he's receiving all glory and praise for all of eternity, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That's what Jonah 2 tells us. And those who pay regard, he throws this in, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So here it is. In a nutshell, in all the turmoil of all that's going on with Jonah, he repents. And you probably know what repentance is because we live in the Bible Belt of America and there's a church on every corner. But just to clarify, repentance is that we're gonna, if we're going this way, repentance is that 180 turn back. But you need to understand, too, that we tend to think in the positive way that I'm going to repent from this sin or from this life and I'm going to turn to God. But what we actually saw Jonah do is repent from God back to his own way. But he's in the discipline. He's in the turmoil. And he's facing this way. And he repents. He turns from that disobedience. And he looks fully on God. And then we're going to see that God's going to deliver him from that. But there's some, there's some core principles to repentance that maybe we don't always touch on. And it really comes down to this. Basically, repentance, because I'm a simple guy, it comes down to this. We see our sin as God sees it. Oh, well, you know, it's just this sin over here. It's not that big of a deal. Is it that big of a deal to a holy God? Like, we make comfortable the sins that we like. And we try to wrap them up so that we are comfortable with them, so that we can live with them whenever there's a holy God on the throne who's told us to forsake all sin. So there's that principle. But basically, we need to see our sin as God sees it. We need to see our disobedience as God sees it. I have three kids. Sometimes I disobey them. And I know y'all would never have this with your kids. But they do not agree with how I perceived their disobedience. They weren't back-talking. They were coming, just on their own time. And they weren't back-talking. They were just trying to clarify that I knew what they were trying to say several different times. Your kids would never do that. I'll put mine out there. Y'all, we do the exact same thing with God. We try to rationalize the sin so that we're comfortable with it whenever He has said very clearly, don't. But what we see is that Jonah repents. And y'all, repentance is the 
only acceptable response to God's discipline. It's the only acceptable response. If he disciplines, I see repentance is because I like it very, very simple. It's a God-centered apology. And you just break it down. You're talking to your kids. What's repentance? What do you know what an apology is? You apologize to me. Well, repentance is apologizing to God and acting on it. But sometimes what we do is we repent like this. Here's God. And we, we're going this way. And we're like, yeah, I repent. And then we only do a half turn. But our, we want to look at him, but we're going to keep going this way because we want to know how far we can get so that we can keep our eyes on him and keep indulging in this over here. I'm just telling you, from experience in life, you will have a miserable life. You're not going to have your best life now while clinging to the things of the world and keeping your eyes on God. He will make you miserable because He wants you to be holy. His misery that He visits upon you is to break you from that, to bring you to the big question of why, so that whenever you get the answer of why, it's holiness and you turn to Him, then you will have your best life now and for all of eternity. It just won't look anything like what the world wants it to look like. Probably, we could say that Jonah was having his best life right there in verses 1 through 10 as he's singing to the ocean depths. You know why? Because God did not forsake him. And if God does not forsake you or give up on you, then you have absolute hope. Okay, last thing on repentance real quick is this. That we tend to think of repentance as a one-time thing. It's for our salvation. So we're living this, this godless uh, hell-driven uh, path and we're, we're on our way to hell. That's, that's our destiny. And then we turn and we repent unto God. We tend to think repentance there. Y'all, repentance? Yeah, repentance isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. And we should be practicing it every month, every day, every hour, every minute, every second. We keep taking our thoughts captive. We look at the depression of our soul and we say, why are you cast down on my soul? Look unto him. But like repentance is a good thing where we constantly keep realigning and reorienting. I got to fly a plane probably, oh goodness, it's probably about 10 years ago. It was pretty terrifying. But I got to, to sit up there and I was the co-pilot, but then eventually the pilot took his hands off and I was just there with my hands on it. And I thought I was good until I got ready to get out of the plane. And then I realized that my hands, my fingers were a vice. My whole body was tense. But here's what I learned flying a plane is that, number one, it's incredibly tense. Number two, it's really, really cool. But what I, what I learned is that whenever you're, you're on that direction, wherever you're flying, there's no white lines and yellow lines. There's no, no things that you run over that kind of cue you. You're just in the air. And you can go that direction any way you want. And so what he said was, you find that light, you find that beacon right out there in the distance, and you, you just keep going towards it. And of course I didn't. I would start talking, and just like in a car, the plane can start to veer off. But, but what seems, you can see this on the instrument, what seems like a small angle, a small percent angle here, this 1%, you keep following that, and that 1% becomes 5, becomes 15, and then you miss it by miles. Repentance is that constant realignment. That whenever I get off by 1% or 5%, I'm going to come back to Christ. And if that's your desire, then you have to accept the discipline of the Lord that whenever we misstep, He will discipline us. Um, I'm going to go on. Let's pray for this. Um, and, and then I'm going to go to point three. Here's how we cultivate that heart of repentance. i got four real quick. 
Y'all, we need to pray that we have hearts sensitive to repentance. We are hard-hearted people. We are. We grow callous. We're prone to wonder, prone to leave the one I love. That's just the Christian condition, and I wish I could tell you that it gets better, but it doesn't. You can be on fire one week, and then the next week there's this sort of callousness that starts to work in. There's this cooling off, and then before long it's a month or it's three years later, and we find ourselves out here in the middle of a field with no direction of which way to go. So we need to pray that God would give us hearts sensitive to repentance. But if we don't course correct at 1 and 5 degrees, it's going to be so much harder at 50. Number two, we need the humility to repent. Quit vying for your own, um, for your own rights before a holy God. He knows what you need. He knows what you want. He created you. We're His workmanship, is what Ephesians 2.10 says. He knows what we need and what we're for. But we need humility to repent. Number three, we need the grace then. Y'all get this one. You need the grace to forgive even yourself. Because what's going to happen is the Lord will discipline you. And you're going to say, okay, I repent. And whenever you repent, you turn back to Him. You need to remember the truths of Scripture. And the truths of Scripture are what we heard in Psalms 103, that He will cast our sins as far as the east is to the west and remember them no more. We remember them, but you know who remembers them more than us? Satan, the accuser. And he will keep piling it on. So we repent. We accept our discipline. Jonah did. We repent. But then I found that sometimes the hardest thing for Christians is not to accept the forgiveness of the Lord, but they just can't forgive themselves. They can't forgive what God has already forgiven in their lives. Just so you know, I've found that praying that God helps me to forgive myself is one of the most powerful things that I can do. Because you will absolutely fail, and then you will fail again. And it's hard for us to forgive ourselves. It's much easier to forgive somebody who's offended us than to forgive ourselves for what we've done. But why hold ourselves accountable for what God has already taken care of? And then, four, with repentance, take joy in his fellowship. You know, he could have just squashed us. There there are scenes in the Old Testament where he just opens up the earth and swallows the people and they're done. There are plenty of situations in Acts, whenever someone's dishonest before, before him, they just drop dead. He doesn't deal with us in that way because He's dealt with His Son on the cross. He has grace and mercy towards us. So, you and I need to be like Jonah. We've disciplined, or I'm sorry, we've disobeyed, therefore He disciplines us, and therefore we can accept that and we can repent. But that's going to call for hearts sensitive to repentance. It's going to call us to have humility to repent, to have grace to forgive ourselves, and then to have joy in His fellowship. Okay, there's a weird part in Jonah. Like he he talks about repentance. And then look at 8, verse 8 and 9. Everything seems to make sense. And then this one kind of comes out of left field. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Absolutely. I just felt like it was weird to put right there. Not going to lie. Look, you're tracking through there. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's just kind of thrown in there. But man, am I glad it's thrown in there. Why does he throw idols in there? Because he needs to. And we need this reminder. 
in the turmoil of God, whatever discipline that he, he leads us through, there's going to be a great tendency to cling to our idols and not to Christ. And so Jonah is reminding us that there's absolutely no hope in any idol whenever the Lord is disciplining you. And there's a broader truth that we already know from the Bible, that there's no hope in any idol anyway. But it all makes sense whenever you look at, He has turned to His one and only hope. I remember the Lord. You are my only hope. My prayer came to you. My only hope in your holy temple, where I hope to be. Everyone who pursues vain idols, they forsake who you are in your steadfast love. That's what that means. But Christians sometimes, and maybe even, even right now, we find ourselves in some pretty dark times. We know we're Christians. And now we're starting to realize, okay, maybe a lot of what's going on, maybe that is the Lord disciplining me. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Because you know what? Sometimes life's just hard and we live in a broken world. All right? So, so don't, over, don't over apply a scriptural truth here. But when everything starts to crumble and get dark, what's going to rise up is our salvation or first our idols. And the idols that we create are not like the idols that you see in the Old Testament. They're, we tend to think of idols as something that's been carved out of metal or wood. But John Calvin aptly says that man's, man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I think that's pretty true. We make, we make our families our idols. We make our wealth our idols. Our house and our property our idols. Our spouse and our kids become idols. Church can become an idol. The idol is anything that buys for your true affection and that brings you full satisfaction and nothing else can, it seems. We make sins our idols. So we don't carve these images and put them on shelves anymore. We don't need to because the wickedness is within and it's near. But God and I have had some pretty hard conversations before where I'm like, Lord, if I lose my family, my faith is going to be pretty rocked. And I don't know where I'm going to be. It's, uh, and that's just me being real with y'all. And you know what God said? Because they're your idol. But your idol is that which you cannot live without. Whenever your idol gets smashed or broken, you feel like there's absolutely nothing else worth living for. Whenever a scripture says, let there be nothing else that comes before me. So what we have a tendency to do is take those things which God has blessed us with, those God things, I'm sorry, those good things that he has blessed us with, those good things become God things to us. And whenever good things become God things, they become idols. And so Jonah is just reminding anyone else who would ever hear this psalm of thanksgiving that when we place our hope in these vain idols, in these empty vessels, there's absolutely no hope. You hope in your idols, you forsake the loving kindness of the Lord. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that they're, they're not good. I'm just saying that we need to be careful of where we place our hope and happiness. If everything in this world should be stripped away, may there still be joy in the presence of the Lord. Y'all, when, when God disciplines, repent. When Jonah was disciplined, he repented. And then verse or part three, this God's deliverance. This one is a... Man, look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish... So he, he hears Jonah, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. By the way, we don't know where he was vomited up. 
scholars have all their opinions and they waste probably a lot of time trying to figure out where he was spit up we don't know so we need to quit searching for that we just know this Jonah disobeyed God disciplined Jonah repented God delivered alright so it keeps going and it's this that while he lovingly disciplined Jonah he most graciously and lovingly delivers him out of that turmoil. Right? I wonder what, wonder if we ever actually have that hope. Okay, put yourself in Jonah's situation for just a moment, and then I, and I promise we're, we're moving through to the end here. But put yourself in that situation. That God said go, we said, we said no, Jonah says no. He gets into a ship, he's trying to sail 2,500 miles away from the destination that was, I believe, just a couple hundred miles away. So he's going to the extreme. God sends this, this huge storm. The boat's rocking. The pagans are even saying, what's going on? Whenever they throw Jonah into the sea, then even the pagans go, that's a mighty God, and they actually begin to worship him. Right? So Jonah is now sinking to the bottom of the ocean. A great fish takes him, and it says that from the heart of the sea. Here's what, here's what I'm trying to get at with all that. Jonah is probably at one of the lowest points on earth, lower than you and I will probably ever go. He's in the belly of a great fish in the ocean depths, and God hears his voice and delivers him. So how foolish of us then, brothers and sisters, to go, even in this room, he, he doesn't care and he can't hear me. I mean, we are not lower than the ocean depths in the belly of a great fish. Whenever he had every practical reason to think there's no way out of this. But if he, if he can hear Jonah in the ocean depths, then he can hear you in the quiet of your car or in the silence of your house. In all the cacophony of everything going on in life, he can hear you cry out to him. The problem with God's deliverance is not ever on God's side. It's on our side. God is actively ready to move on our behalf. We just refuse to believe that he would. I think it's a lot like what we see in Luke. Will you all turn to Luke? Luke chapter 15. I think that what we see with the prodigal son is exactly what happens whenever from the, from the depths of all the chaos and darkness that might be visited upon us, whenever we cry out to our God, I think we see what happens in the prodigal son, Luke 15. And that's why I say this, this is actually a very comforting passage in Jonah to me. Luke 15, verses 17 through 24. And we're picking up in the middle of the parable. But when he came to himself, whenever the prodigal son, the young one who wanted all of his inheritance, he goes and he spoils it. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Do you see the parallel with Jonah yet? Jonah's, in the, Jonah's at his lowest point and he says, I've got to go to the father. There's absolutely nothing. Like, this is my doing. So there's humility, there's repentance. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he, oh man, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill him and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Praise the Lord that that's how the Lord deals with those of us who have been disobedient and that He is disciplined, that when we cry unto Him, He runs and He embraces and He dresses us in His forgiveness and He holds us close and He celebrates. Jonah 2 shows us the cost of disobedience, that there will be discipline, but when there is heartfelt repentance, God welcomes us and forgives us. And so, y'all, that's the, that's the paradigm that we see in Jonah chapter 2. That Jonah, dis, Jonah disobeys. God disciplines. Jonah repents. God delivers. And the same is absolutely true of you and me. You and I will disobey. And when we do, for the sake of our holiness, without which we will not see the Lord, He will discipline those whom He loves. Because He's treating us as, quote, legitimate Sons is what Scripture tells us. That He disciplines us because He loves us and it's for our good. And when He disciplines us, He gives us the opportunity to repent. And when we repent, we place our hope in Him and not in idols. And whenever we place our hope in Him, He delivers us. Now here's the the hook of it all, real quick, and then we're going to pray. If If you're familiar with the book of Jonah... And I kind of gave you the clip note version. God does deliver Jonah, but he still expects Jonah to fulfill the mission that Jonah didn't want to do in the first place. He didn't just say, you're forgiven, here's a new task, here's a new mission. But he gives him another chance. And that's what he's going to do with us. So, we're going to pick that up in chapter 3. And here's what we're going to see in chapter 3. God is absolutely faithful absolutely faithful. Jonah's the issue. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves living lives like Jonah and the Lord will deal with us. But praise the Lord He deals with us and doesn't leave us to our own designs. Lord God, we come to You. And Lord, I pray that that Your Word today, um, even even in my own failings of of Job and Jonah and and, uh, and stumbling over words, Lord, I'd so thankful that Paul models that we don't come with eloquent speech, but with power in the Word. Lord, so that if the personality who's behind the pulpit is removed, if, if words are stumbled over, but your great truths are known, Lord, if at the end of the day, your doctrines are known and grasped by your people for the sake of living God-glorifying lives, then praise the Lord for all of the stumblings. Lord God, what I pray is that Deal with us if we're living lives of active disobedience right now. Love us so much to call us out and discipline us. We know it's not going to be um, comforting in one regard. Or we know that your discipline can be heavy. If our earthly parents can discipline us in a way that, that breaks us and hurts. Lord, but it's only for a moment. And the end is good and growth. Lord, May we accept the loving discipline of you because you love us enough to discipline us and not just cast us away. Lord, we thank you that when we repent, 
And Lord, I pray for a heart of repentance, not just among us right now, but Lord, for, for our goodness, Lord, our, our 15, 20 people who, who aren't able to gather here, Lord, may, may they have repentant hearts even where they are because that's how your spirit moves. But Lord, would you give us hearts of repentance? And Lord, may we take great joy in that you hold us fast, that you don't cast us off, and that when we repent, you forgive us and deliver us. Lord, also give us the grace to forgive ourselves so that we can have fullness of joy in your presence. You did not cast us away into utter darkness, but you cast our sins away. The east is to the west and remember them no more. Praise the Lord and thank you for your son who bore the wrath reserved for us so that all we know is grace and mercy and loving kindness. Lord, may that move us to live God-glorifying lives. Lord, we love you. Amen. One more song. We'll be on page 37 and it's still standing.